Next up is Michael Clam. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, really, thank you. Next up is Michael Clam. Hey, hey you know, I got to talk because me and Michael Clam have some history also. Michael Clam and Jimmy Jazz are sitting around talking to me. They're doing a show naked. I've been banned from San Diego State ever since. They'll never let me back there. That's, that's the end of that. Michael Clem also had me do a show downtown for uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art. And I went too far. I'll admit I went too far, but the circumstances demanded it. So once again, there's another place that will never invite me back. Michael Clem hosts the shows at the San Diego Art Institute, the Museum of Living Artists in Balboa Park, the art and poetry shows. They're awesome. They're always crowded, but it's worth it because if you bring a drink, you get in. For, if you bring a bottle of wine or, you know, something to share with anyone else, you get in for free. So it just makes it much more community, and you, you get to get drunk, you know, because everyone's bringing a bottle of wine. No one wants to pay. You can, you know, you have a good time. The next one's on June 11th, and so uh, starts at 6.30 or 7. Starts at 6.30, June 11th, Balboa Park, San Diego Institute. Next up, Michael Clam. So yeah, June 11th, we have Rich Ferguson coming down from Los Angeles and the San Diego Poetry Annual uh, uh, Poets who were published in for the 2016 collection are coming down to do their thing. So that'll be really fun. And like Ted said, bring something to drink or some snacks and share and you get in for free, which is very cool and fun. All right. So the first poem that I'm going to do, and I'm going to sit down and drink with you if that's okay sit down and get comfy. All right, the first one I'm going to read is called, uh, uh, well, first of all, I got to thank Ted. Ted, thank you so much for publishing the books and, and, you know, inviting us to do this and being there all the time. And of course, Kara, thanks for everything that you've done. Uh, say something, anything is just great, great to listen to. And uh, yeah, the, so check out the podcast. You go to punapress.com and check out the podcast. And that's uh, also uh, Kara's work. And it's, uh, there's some, just some great, great voices there. Um, okay, first poem I'm going to do. And I need to, put, I need to put on my glasses. Yeah, it's called Emma and the Buddha Frog. Emma and the Buddha Frog. And you can get that on punapress.com as well. All right. There it is right there. All right. And Ted is going to be selling those as well. All right, the first, first poem I'm going to do is called Cannabis Sativa. It's not just for breakfast anymore. When Gutenberg finished his presses, the first papers that rolled through the machines were hemp papers, and therefore the first mass-produced Bibles were made of marijuana. Praise Eris and pass the holy yucca spliff to the left and right-hand side. The good Lord's ganja should not be a crime for you, for me, for the whole goddamn family. Our Hindu brothers and sisters know the hemp plant is holy. In the waters of Bang live the guardians, and Shiva dances to their mystical intoxications. The Buddha himself spent six months eating only the cannabis seed, the earth's most complete protein, and for our Muslim friends, the spirit of Elijah breathes in those green leaves. Birds love to taste its sweet flowers. Bugs love to sense its skunky powers. Ecologists love its stony fibers. Economists love its money color. Greenpeace loves it, and presidents, and even the lawyers, too. 
but to the agents and supporters of the DEA. All this gets sucked into the American memory hole, along with the great fields of Kentucky, the rope walk wild hemp rising in a sea of patriotic weed. It should never be forgotten that the war on drugs is nothing less than a notion to fill cells and ring bells for politicians and preachers. Jerry Falwell smoking Jesus. William Bennett penning propaganda and swilling Seagrams until his liver goes rotten. Here's a rhyme for his book of virtues. Little Miss Prophet sings legalize it. She sits on her tuff and hits the pipe all day. Along comes a spider, sits down beside her and says, fuck the police, the CIA, the FBI, Operation Just Cause, Operation Ghost Dancer, an operation to an operation to see if an operation is still in operation. Op, op, billions and billions and billions of dollars. And why? El dinero y la política. Money and politics doping the collective mind. Hemp? Hemp fiber for clothes, hemp fiber for paper, hemp seed for perfect nutrition. The essential fatty acids making your temple a beautiful place to be. Hemp biomass to eliminate destruction and death in the name of fossil fuels. To eliminate the venomous presidents who hunt and kill to compensate for their needle tricks. No more dependency on fire. Hemp for life. Hemp for peace. Hemp is what's for dinner. Your own dope dueling, dope-dealing government begged you to grow hemp during World War II. Henry Ford built and powered a car with marijuana. The technology has been here for 75 years. Remember. Why can't we remember? Remember the young adults who are sent to die so the fossil few can fill their pockets while we pump. To quote our own government, the enemy is different now, but not quite contrary. And the rally remains the same. Hemp. Hemp for victory. And uh, when Ted invited me to come and read with all of the other authors with Poon and Press, of course, I was totally honored and fired up and because and, uh, I love Ted very much and, and all the writers. So just phenomenal, phenomenal writers in every regard. Um, uh, when I first met Ted, I was reading this poem a lot. Uh, at the time, it was called The Deep End, and uh, it's changed a bit over time. So this is called uh, Big Daddy Apocalypse and the Deep End of the Gene Pool. Family heading south. Dad's wearing a Make America Great Again ball cap, pair of Bermuda shorts, pink legs glowing in the San Diego sun. Mom's makeup is as stiff as toast, and Junior's hair is parted and flapped like Trump's, his face as white as a pillow, eyes blue like toilet cleanser. We all exit the trolley together. A man with an oversized head, eyes like slanted Seviana olives, steps off and slips away into the oblivion of his disease. One of the thugs of Armageddon approaches from the west, black suit and tie on a 90-degree muggy day, schlepping around the word of God. He stands right next to me, hands me a flyer from the Baptist Evangelistic Missionary Alliance. Yeah, man, he says with a slow accent. English cruising up lowrider vocal cords, words filtering through his thick, black, beautiful Emiliano Zapata mustache. He tells me that just six months ago, he was working in a head shop selling bongs and roach clips, and then he found Jesus. He smiles like a man displaying a vacuum cleaner. Have you ever heard of being born again? I look around, jokers to the left of me, clowns to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with Big Daddy of the Apocalypse. 125-pound hailstones will be falling from the sky. Soon I'm alone, skinny, bad hair, looking like I haven't slept in days. Of course the preacher is preying on me. The ground will crack. If I could show you in the Bible, he asks, the way, would you go? Go where? 
Heaven, Hell, an Iggy Azalea concert, the Republican convention. I don't have a pass for any one of these events. He takes off his chaos agent sunglasses. There are barcodes where his pupils should be. The earth rumbles, splits open, and CIA agents and killer clowns crawl up out of the glowing fissures. Blood boils up from San Diego Bay. Forty-foot flames leap from the convention center. The seven seals fly by, all tattered, streaked with motor oil, tumbling like the plastic grocery sacks of Interstate 8. The evangelist seems a little freaked out now. I have succumbed to one of my CCD flashbacks, staring at him, empty, Lost in my head, the monk in the asylum. They told us mothers, he says quickly, not interested in me anymore. Come over to the church sometime, man. The address is on the flyer. He turns away, puts the Bible under his armpit, and disappears. The trolley staggers around the bend, headed back from Tijuana, drunk on tequila and chicle. I make a mad dash for the station. I would be saved. The trolley stops, lets out a sigh, and opens its ribs so that I can get in. And then I had a plan, so... Oh, I want to do Slonky. This, this poem's called Slonky. Slonky the Wonky Slinky. Everybody remembers Slinkies, right? Yeah. Fun, fun for a girl and a boy, right? So uh, let me see if I can find Slonky. Slonky the Wonky Slinky. What did I do with that? It's not there. Oh, here it is. Okay, ready? All right, so this is called Slonky the Wonky Slinky. Okay. Who said they're ready? Who was that? Thanks, Chris. I'm glad you're here, man. <laughs> yeah, me too. Here we go. All right. Uh, so this is called uh, Slinky the Wonky Slinky. Every slinky breaks without fail. It stretches too far, loses its spring. It gets stepped on and bent, can no longer worm its way magically, gracefully, step by step. But isn't that just like life? You start out made of jelly, wiggling. Then something gets thrown out of whack and suddenly you become less interesting, leaning left or tilting right, limping down the stairs. There is no promised land for the slonky, the wonky slinky, no country for old springs. Once your tube stretches and goes wobbly, you might as well throw in the towel, be something else, no longer a majestic carpet-diving snake, but a piece of art, an anachronism, an interlocking 3D loop on the shaggy canvas of the world, which really means in a box, in the garage, next to the bowling ball and the Stairmaster. Yea, verily, there comes a time in the life of every slinky when it becomes a slonky. No need to mourn, no need to eulogize. It is what it is, it is what it was, over and over and over, etc. ad nauseum fun for a girl and a boy. There you go. Slinky the wonky slinky. There you go. Reinventing the slinky for the folks at the whistle stop. All right. Um, and then I was going to do uh, the bats. You guys want to hear a, a road trip poem? I'll do a road trip poem. And here again, I had a plan, and then it fell apart because of my paper clipping. You know? Paper clips, man. Let me see. All right, here we go. There's Big Daddy Apocalypse. All right. All right, this is called The Bats Come Out Purple and Mad to Crush the Dragonflies. And I must drink first. Is everybody okay? I can hear the vent. Are we good? Yeah? Everybody's good? Okay. All right. 
This is called The Bats Come Out Purple and Mad to Crush the Dragonflies. We float along the road and floating is like flying. And yet we are more like stones as the earth pours all around, chipping away at our sides, moving us slowly until we stop, but the music slides. And when we turn left, these edges of desert fold together and the dry whites and browns rush into the green that walks along the river. Soon we would be traveling by dragonfly. We would skip from stone to stone, get wedged in 70 degrees of river. We would slip slide out to the middle, breathing through our eyelids, the trout and the rock crawlers scattering under our monster shadows. And we would be with the hollow crickets hours and hours on the river. The storytellers, the laughing friends, the sunburnt, drunken, baked lords and goddesses of bliss. Until the colors pour down the mountains and one of us yells at the sun, you quitter! Until the bats come out purple and mad to crush the dragonflies. Until the vultures whirl downstream for the, for the leftovers, for us. The ones who stack the stones, the ones who tilt the cosmos. The ones who know that there has to be an explicit period of living. A time when there is no evidence of surrender. The stone temples that we build in our rivers for our moments in the light are made of thousands of years of rolling. So there's my road trip poem. All right. All right, and then uh, this is called King Beast. Uh, I have children. We have, uh, on occasion, rolled over to the, to the San Diego Zoo, and uh, I uh, try to write as I roam around, the, roam around the world that we live in. So uh, this came from a trip to the zoo. It's called King Beast. I cannot watch the lion at the zoo, pacing back and forth like a sick, lonely man stuck with his thoughts panting at the onlookers, at a spray distance of 12 feet, and everyone, including myself, only 10 feet away, and how mathematically we could all take a blast of territory fluid to the sunglasses, and how his vein muscles flex, and how his balls do not swing, which surprises me. They are just there, stiff and breakable like young politicians. And I can't look at him because he doesn't tear at the fence, nor roar in anger, nor spray every tourist. Instead, he paces. And the docents will tell you that pacing is a show of territoriality and strength. But I'm here to tell you that pacing is an act of submission. I cannot look without thinking, sit down, lion, and make a plan to knock out the keeper who brings the meat, to blast through the door when the dung shovelers come to do what no self-respecting lion would ever do. Escape, but don't pace. It reminds me too much of how often the people outside the gate roll over in this life, living oblivion, just taking it, pacing miles in circles like beasts who could be kings, relegated to turning in their own private spirals, their own squeaky clean cages furnished by Ikea, which creates a better everyday life for the many people by offering a wide range of well-designed functional home furnishing products at prices so low that as many people as possible will be able to afford them. The Newt Storp Shea Lounge Recon recliner, the opiate of the people. And I have taken this zoo trip far too seriously. I cannot look anymore, yet I did pay the price of admission. I paid, I entered. Bonobos are bonobos after all. And I haven't seen the hairless moles yet. So I move on, full of desire and slobber and sweat and the kind of optimism that only a primate with a long spine and fatty, undefined chunks of brains like mine could possibly understand. There you go. So there's my zoo trip. A little trip to the zoo with the kiddos. With the wee kiddos, the kitty poos. All right. 
And then, uh, uh, so I'm going to read two from the book. This is the book that um, Ted mentioned and came up and said is uh, for sale. So if you want to buy it, you can talk to Ted, of course, or go to the website. Uh, this, this is from Emma and the Buddha Frog. And uh, the first poem I'm going to read from this is called uh, Staff Meetings Are Places for the Dead to Congregate. <laughs> All right. Staff Meetings Are Places for the Dead to Congregate. And it's got great artwork. This is Emily Larlam's artwork here. Uh, Ron Moya's got some awesome art pieces in there. Uh, and so you're going to want Dave Lontine did the cover art, so it's full of art and poetry and short stories. All right. Uh, the coffee drinker dead. Oh, staff meetings are places for the dead to congregate. The coffee drinker dead come floating in with clever slogans on their mugs. No coffee, no peace. The double entendre of the fiend. And there's always a wrinkle-free and well-painted ghost of the twitching eye whose caffeine count never suffices, swaths of pink lipstick smeared across her tumbler. The yes, yes, yes corpses surround each other and bob their heads like cheap hookers. The morning people come in clattering, and the rest of the skeletons wish them deader than dead. The presenters march in and say something evil like, today will be a fun, productive day. Throughout the meetings, one can hear the moaning of souls stuck in purgatory and the occasional creaking of bones shuffling a tired ass from one cheek to the other. But at the end of every staff meeting, Hope enters the room, holding in her hands a cluster of marigolds. The clock ticks freedom. And as the spirits begin to rise, some lost soul in the back of the room always raises his hand and smacks the dead right back into the tomb. I have a question, he says and every skull turns its eye holes to heaven or drops its chin in despair. All ye who enter here, abandon hope. This staff meeting will never end. And then there's a bunch of skulls hanging around out there. All right. And then uh, the last poem, this is the last poem I'm going to do. And uh, Kara's uh, um, podcast uh, has this poem on there as well. So if you want to hear it over and over and over thousands and thousands of times. Uh, and Ron Moya. Where's Ron? Ron did the drawing for this one, too, so you got to check it out. I love this drawing. All right. An argument for reincarnation into a yelping dog. When speaking of reincarnation, nobody ever says, I want to be a chihuahua. But what if you found out that chihuahuas tremble because they are in a constant state of orgasm? If you are a nymphomaniac or an addict, you might think twice about this. If you are in any other category, you might view this as irrational. The chihuahua doesn't shake to trigger its G-spots. It's, con it's in constant fear of the creator of the sky, whose winged beasts eat little creatures with wet eyes like peeled grapes, however. It is possible that the chihuahua understands that orgasm is an act of will. You must play hard, practice daily, the free swing of a dangling leg, focus. What if you could just hold the chihuahua and have 50 bouts of multiple orgasms? There would be chihuahuas in the windows at Nordstrom. Generations of writers would be stuck in Mexico penning hip-hop memoirs of twitching bitches. Imagine the poet with Senorita Perfecta climbing up his leg, a tequila worm in her teeth, strange kicks for the weirdest of the weird who celebrates the transfiguration, the becoming of the animal with the least amount of time to reflect on philosophy, to suddenly be threatened by everything, the postman, the devil, corporate fast food, yo no quiero biogenetically engineered Taco Bell, way. A dog that yelps in the spirit of fear and rebellion. A short-haired coitus machine in a world where everyone thinks you're annoying, but you know the truth. When speaking of reincarnation, nobody ever says chicken either. 
But this is a subject for another time, a different era, the days of dogs with short legs and birds that refuse to fly because the grass is soft and easy. Here is wisdom. Neither the chihuahua nor the chicken will ever peck your eyes out for your religious beliefs. They will not eat your liver to save your soul. Remember this and go forth and pick corn and eat pussy and be careful because God is watching and God is not watching. In the grand scheme of things, whether you become the stone, the tree, the gasoline rainbow slick on University Avenue, the breath of wind, the battery acid and the vibrating pink kitty cat, come on back. Be mindful, look deeply, and touch yourself and your friends in mysterious ways. Thank you. <laughs>